When someone says to you, do you want the good news or the bad news, you instantly tense up, don't you? You, you know whatever they're going to say, it's not going to be good. Hey, honey, do you want the good news or the bad news? The good news is I'm, I'm shouting as takeaway for dinner. The bad news is I don't think we're ever going to be using the oven again. Uh, today, we're listening to the, uh, the start of Zechariah's final prophecy. And his message is about a day, a day that's both good news and bad news, or maybe it's good news through bad news. Uh, the good news is great. These chapters, it's a message of salvation, sin forgiven, eternally restored relationship with God. But the bad news is it's going to come in the midst of struggle, suffering and sorrow. Uh, this prophecy, it's actually Zechariah 12 to 14, or one prophecy. We're just going to look at the first two chapters today. The words that day or on that day are repeated 16 times in three chapters. Nine of them we're going to look at today. We'll get to the final seven next week. Uh, the way this chapter comes along, it feels a bit like some of those articles you read online. There's just a list, you know, nine things you need to know before buying insurance, seven fun facts about Taylor Swift, 16 things you must know about that day. Uh, these, these chapters, this prophecy, paints a picture by listing all kinds of things about that day. It's the same event that other prophets call the day of the Lord. Now, as we read through this uh, this prophecy, we might initially have different ideas about what that day is. Is it a day that's already happened? Is it something that's happening or is it still to come? So how are we going to work this out, especially since different Christians have different assumptions about what Zechariah is talking about? Assumptions that might come from personality or politics different theories about how we are to read the Bible literally. What does a, a literal interpretation look like and how do we do it? People have different theories about that. How are we going to answer this question? Well, we've got to allow the Bible to speak for itself. Uh, the only faithful Christian way to read the Bible is to let the, the whole Bible interpret Scripture, in particular to allow the New Testament to say what it looks like for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So that's what we're going to be doing today. So these last few chapters of Zechariah, they're a prophecy, a message from God, the God who created all things. So have a listen to this majestic opening. It's, it's quite astounding. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. So this is from verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the human spirit within a person declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. This is our God, our big God. And the reason God begins and he kind of introduces himself in this prophecy with this gobsmacking introduction is because of what he's about to go on and say. What's going to happen on that day is going to be a display of God's power like his power in creation. And what's the glorious creator God going to do? He's going to bring about a day of suffering and salvation. We've already heard it in verse 2. God's people will be sieged. And the prophecy continues with loads of battle imagery. Uh, verse 3, on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered around her, 
I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I'll strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. Now, it's easy to focus on the good news in this these verses, Jerusalem is an immovable rock. You, you can't pick it up, or, or if you try, you're going to do your back in. Uh, the, the attacking army's horses will trip in their blindness, and the nations will say, oh, the reason we can't defeat God's people, is the reason they're strong, is because of who their God is. Now, that's, that's good news, isn't it? But don't forget, this is war. You might win, but yes, you're under attack. This is unsettling. This is a scary time being depicted in this prophecy. Yes, it's about salvation, but it's through turmoil and suffering. What does salvation mean? In these chapters, it's rescue, repentance and removal. Rescue, repentance and removal. The world will be on fire, but God's people will be rescued. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. A God will be a shield, verse 8. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So God's salvation comes as he rescues his people from danger, defeat and death. Rescue, there's also going to be repentance. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And then it goes on to talk about deep mourning. The, the morning of repentance that will happen on that day, verse 12, the land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of the of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. There's going to be deep mourning, the morning of repentance. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But for now, what are we seeing? God's salvation is about rescue, repentance, and finally, removal. The removal of sin and lie. So jump down to chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 2. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I'll remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. A God promises to purify his people by removing sin and temptation from them. No more idol worship. The prophecy bit's a bit strange, quite confronting. Uh, did you hear though, verse 3 is the key, it's false prophets, lying prophets who will be removed. It's actually very similar to the language of Deuteronomy, how you deal with a false prophet. Uh, what's the picture of Zechariah 12 to 13? It's a great 
war, a great battle, when the enemies of God's people surround them, but then there's salvation. God destroys the enemies, the enemies outside and inside. And it's implied in these chapters, but you get to chapter 4 and we're going to see it even more next week. God's salvation will mean peace and prosperity for his people. This is a good news day. But do you feel the tension? Yes, it's good news day, but it's through suffering. God will save through suffering. It's like every single superhero movie, isn't it? It's when things look most bleak, when all seems lost, when the hero is down and the bad guys have the upper hand, but then something happens. Maybe our hero gets a word of encouragement or his friends appear on the horizon and the tide turns, good triumphs. Why do we love these movies, these stories, where good wins but through struggle and suffering? It's because they're the echoes of the story, of God's story. Yes, God brings salvation, but it's through suffering. Now, this isn't the main point in Zechariah. It's not the main question Zechariah is answering, but I think our question might be as we read these chapters, when is this day? Uh, This talk about Jerusalem being sieged, does it refer to one of the many times in history when this has happened? Is this a prophecy about the rise of the the Greek or the Roman Empire and their campaigns against Jerusalem? But you read the prophecy and the victory sounds so final, so complete, you start thinking, well, maybe this day is still to come. Uh, Maybe Zechariah is prophesying some great final battle involving the modern state of Israel And with the continual conflict in the Middle East, you might imagine this. Is this what it's about? How do we work it out? How can we work out what day Zechariah is speaking about? Well, as I said at the start, it's not about us guessing, but it's letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's see how the New Testament says Zechariah is fulfilled. And to do that, we've got to zoom in on two of the most intriguing, most shocking statements in Zechariah 12 to 13. So I mentioned before, uh, God's salvation comes through repentance, and they're the verse we're going to look at now. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God. It's feeling the weight of your guilt and running to God for forgiveness. And in verse 10, we see this happening. But the reason it happens, it makes you scratch your head. So have a listen to verse 10. So this is Zechariah 12. Verse 10, and I'll pour out on the house of David and the, in, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. A, a spirit of grace and supplication. Supplication is not a word we use much. It means prayer or pleading. It's begging God for forgiveness. This is heartfelt repentance. They mourn like the grief of losing a child. All death is sad. We grieve. But the death of a child, that grief isn't quickly healed. This is deep grief. Why are they grieving? Why are they grieving their sin? Why are they asking God for forgiveness? Well, did you hear It says, because they will look at me. Who's speaking? God is speaking. They're going to look at God, whom they have pierced, whom they have stabbed. This is weird. First up, 
How can you look at God? God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. Moses asked to look at God, but the most he got was his back. And how can you stab God? He doesn't have a body to look at, let alone to stab. And to top it off, it's God's people themselves who do the stabbing. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. One solution could be that piercing is a metaphor. It could mean they've deeply offended God. But the word piercing is only ever used literally in the Bible. It's a physical stabbing with a sword. And with all the other physical things in this prophecy, it does make you wonder. Well, this shocking picture continues because after stabbing or piercing God, chapter 13 concludes with a poem about God stabbing his shepherd. Verse 7 Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Do you get what's happening? First, God is pierced. He's stabbed by his own people. And now God takes up the sword and he doesn't stab his people. He doesn't get revenge. He stabs his shepherd, the man who is close to him. It makes us think about last week. Zechariah taking on the roles of the good and the foolish shepherd. Uh, in this prophecy, it's, it's, it's the good shepherd who's attacked. It's the man close to God. And as the, the good shepherd is struck, he's struck at God's command, then the sheep, God's people, scatter. They are more than decimated. If they were decimated, then 10% would perish, but 90% survive. But on this day, two-thirds of the people perish and only one-third survive. What's going on? The one-third are the faithful remnant. All throughout the history of Israel, we see that not everyone descended from Abraham are truly the people of God. Not every Israelite trusted in God, to use the language of Romans, not all who descended from Israel are Israel. What matters is faith. And Zechariah says on that day, on this day of suffering and salvation, the remnant will be revealed. The the remaining faithful one-third will be saved. The picture is not about precise mathematics, it's, it's about the feel, isn't it? The majority are scattered, the minority, the remnant remain. But even the remnant go through fire, not a destroying fire, but a refining fire. Uh, precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, uh, they're refined by fire in a furnace. You use heat and chemical reactions to remove these, the base metals to get rid of iron and lead and whatever. I'm sure Vaughan can tell us all about it. And so what is left after the, the refining is just pure silver or pure gold. God says the remnant, those who trust in him, will be refined. And we see the same thing at the start of the chapter where it's not, the picture's not about refining, but washing. But the point's the same. So have a look at verse 1, Zechariah 13, 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, when you've been working in the heat 
and dust or you've been camping and hiking for days on end. There's nothing like getting home and having a proper shower, washing the filth away. That's God's promise for those who mourn and grieve for their sin. For those who turn and trust in him, the faithful remnant, sin will be washed away, impurities smelted away, and the outcome will be relationship with God. I'll read it again from verse 9. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. When we talk about God's covenant, yes, covenant means promise, but it's really about a relationship built on promise. And this is covenant. This is the covenant relationship. You are my people. You are our God. Covenant is a word that sums up a relationship of intimacy and love built on a foundation of a faithful promise. It's been quite a journey. Now, remember where we started, siege and wars all around. This is an amazing place to finish. Intimacy and love, God with his clean and refined people. But the question still rattling around is, when is that day? And some Christians look at this passage and they they assume with the picture of Jerusalem under siege or Jerusalem being rescued by God and with Israelites both facing judgment but also coming to repentance, they think, well, we've never quite seen something like that happen yet, so it must be predicting something still to come. And, and this might, when you think about it that way, it might feel like you're taking the prophecy literally. But as I've said over and over again, we've got to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And guess what? God knows what he was talking about. We don't have to guess about what this prophecy is talking about because the Bible tells us in Jesus this day has come. In the last hours of Jesus' life, as enemies conspired against him, Jesus takes up Zechariah's prophecy and says, today is that day. Just just before he is betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, just hours before that, Jesus tells his disciples what's about to happen. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the shepherd? Who is the good shepherd who will be struck? What was Zechariah prophesying? Jesus. And as the time gets closer, the faithful remnant is, is whittled down It starts with Jesus and the twelve in the upper room and then Judas betrays and Jesus is arrested in the, and in the garden of Gethsemane, everyone flees, the sheep scatter and Jesus faces his trial and crucifixion all alone. Yes, some women are there watching from a distance, but As Jesus is surrounded by his enemies, both the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers and those in the crowd, he is utterly alone. The faithful remnant of God's people is down to one, the man upon a cross. And as Jesus hangs alone on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, his side is pierced by a Roman soldier. And the crowd of Jews and and soldiers look upon the one who is pierced, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. 
But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. They look on the one they have pierced. The shepherd is struck. The sheep have scattered. And it's at at this moment that feels like defeat as Jesus hangs and dies. Yet on the third day, he proves he is the immovable rock, that he is strong as he is raised to life again. And so we see how Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled. How is it that people can look at me, at God, whom they have pierced? It's only because in Jesus, the God-man, God has a body. In Jesus, God has taken into himself our humanity. This is how God himself is pierced. And it is God who strikes the shepherd. As God himself, in the person of Jesus, is pierced, he is struck, Jesus does this as he bears the wrath of God against sin. And so in Jesus' death, a fountain to wash away sin is opened. The fountain is Jesus' blood poured out at the cross so that you and I and and anyone who looks to Jesus in, in repentance and faith may be washed clean, be purified as gold through fire. So back to the question of when. What what event is that day? That day Zechariah is looking forward to is the day of Christ. The day of Christ's death, resurrection and ascension And because Jesus is risen and reigning now, it's a day we are still living in. Today is a good news day. Because today is a day when we, any one of us, can be washed by the fountain and call out to God and he will answer us, you are my people. And we will say, you are our God. That day has come, it's begun, it continues, and it will be finalised when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns and the dead are raised to life, the Bible says every eye will look at Jesus, the one we pierced. Revelation 1-7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. This is our hope. With resurrected bodies, we will see him. Everyone will see Jesus and all peoples of the earth will mourn. Some will mourn because their sin, guilt and shame is revealed for what it is. They mourn because Jesus, their judge, has come. Others will mourn because our repentance is complete. And so the most important question is, will that day be a good news day for you? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because in Jesus there is a good news day. Since he has been pierced to be a fountain of cleansing, since Jesus, our good shepherd, has been struck to make a new covenant with us, there is a good news day now and coming. Thank you for everything you've done in Jesus. 
Lord, we pray for those who don't know Jesus, give repentance that they might see your salvation. And for those of us trusting in Jesus, give us joy and strength as we keep looking to the one who was pierced, knowing that in him is our salvation. May we call on your name, knowing you'll answer us because you are our God and we are your people. Amen.